What, you thought we were going to get out of this series? No, we're stuck in this series for a little while longer. So where did the idea of giving gifts at Christmas come from in the first place? Now, before you answer that question, you don't know, uh, because we don't really know. Uh, there's not a continual stream of traditions dating all the way back to uh, the birth of Christ with this. It's not like as if every single Christmas from the time Joseph and Mary had Jesus turn one that everybody started doing this. Uh, we don't really know. As with a lot of the Christmas traditions, we've kind of gone back and sort of tried to Christianize the traditions. For instance, the why do we do Christmas trees? Well, because just as though the evergreen never dies, God loves for us, never dies. Why do we put lights all over the yard that we leave up until March? Because the light of the world has come into, or the light of the world has come into our darkness and shines, not just this time of year, but until we get around to taking care of it. I, I guess, I don't know. It, some people will go back to St. Nick, and so some people trace back our giving to St. Nicholas, which was a bishop back in the 4th century who gave gifts to children, was known for giving gifts to the poor. And so on St. Nicholas Day, which was actually December 6th, people would give gifts to commemorate that. And then in the 1500s with Martin Luther and the Reformation, sort of changing a lot of the practices of the Catholic Church, which were focusing on saints. Rather, he wanted it to be more of a focus on Christ, and so he moved it over to the celebration of Christ's birth, which being December 25th of the giving and receiving gifts. And that's sort of how the whole St. Nicholas, Santa Claus all morphed into gift giving, if you will. Uh, others would go back, no, 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 it goes back to the three wise men that came, because remember the Bible said there was three wise men who came and gave three gifts. Well, there were three gifts, and we don't know how many wise men, but there were three gifts, and so because of that, some people do the three-gift Christmas. You ever heard of this, the three-gift Christmas? That's uh, where you give uh, something that you enjoy, something that for education, and something that you need, something like that, right? And you think, well, that would, wow, by the way, if your kid's in this room, you're going to hate me after this message. I'm sorry, but it just, too bad. Uh, anyways, uh, but, so I remember years ago thinking that would be kind of, maybe we should, maybe we should we kind of you know, cut down on the commercialization of Christmas. We just focus on three gifts, but that doesn't really help anyway because, oh, three gifts, let's see, something I'll enjoy, something uh, for education, something I, I need. Okay, well, I need a new wardrobe, I need a MacBook for school, and I need an Xbox to have fun with. That really didn't cut down on the expenses of Christmas at all, did it? But uh, wherever we got it from, it's clear that the commercialization of Christmas has come on in the uh, past couple hundred years with the advent of large corporations and companies pushing and driving with the marketing and media, uh, which is why this strange phenomenon will happen. Uh, over this next week, you will go from Thanksgiving around a table to appropriately named Black Friday, the place where the darkness of our soul comes back out uh, and all the envy and greed comes to light. Uh, most Americans will spend somewhere between $500 and $1,000 next Friday, whether it's online or in person. Uh, many people will go into debt for that. 52% uh, of people will buy something they regret later. And some of you right now are thinking, I'm not going to spend $500 to $1,000. Well, maybe not on gifts because three-fourths of you will spend it on something for yourself. That's what it says, 77% go shopping for themselves on Black Friday. Come on, who guilty with me, right? I usually only go to one store on Black Friday, Home Depot. They have put stuff on sale they'll never put on sale the rest of the year, right? Anyways, I digress. Um, it's also the most common time of year that people go into debt. 
Uh, most uh, uh, financial needs or benevolent requests that churches get come in January, February when all the bills come due from Christmas. And uh, I, kind of in line with this, uh, heard a story uh, from social media. I wasn't on there wasting my time on it, but um, I won't tell you it was April that showed me about this. But uh, it, <laughs> I guess Jennifer Hudson, who I, I guess she's the girl from American Idol, uh, she's worth about $30 million. So her son, for Christmas this year, wanted a pair of $20,000 Nikes and was all mad because she wouldn't get it for him. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. As a parent, I'd be like, oh, you want to walk instead of getting a car. Okay, if that's what you want, you, you, it's, you either $20,000 for a car or $20,000 for a pair of shoes. Either way, it's for transportation. It's going to come out of the transportation budget. And if that's what you want, you can walk everywhere instead of driving. That's up to you. Uh, but she told him no. And so he's like, okay, well, I'm going I'm to shame her on social media by putting her on blast because here's my mom worth $30 million. She won't give me $20,000 or $20, pair of Nike shoes. I mean, come on. If, if somebody made $30,000, wouldn't they get their kid a $20 pair of shoes? How is this any different? And so she came right back and said, I won't get you a pair of $20,000 $20, pair of shoes. Why? Because I have $30 million. And if I spent money on shoes like that, I wouldn't have $30 million. And so she said, no, ain't going to happen. Um, uh, so where does all this come from? Well, we've been talking about strongholds. Strongholds are uh, deep-seated uh, lies that we believe. They happen o typically over a long period of time. And they're lies we believe about ourselves, about what we're capable of or our character, uh, and also lies we believe about God and his character. Now, when I say they happen over a long period of time, uh, a lot of them begin in childhood. And if you think about what we do at Christmas, is it fair to say that at Christmas and the way we do gift giving very likely leads to strongholds of coveting and envy? Is that fair? Okay, so what do you mean, coveting and envy? Um, well, uh, coveting and envy. Coveting is the uncontrolled desire to acquire, the, the idea that I need to have more. It's a yearning for what somebody else has. I see something else and I want it. By the way, 99% of marketing is to uh, spur on coveting. This is where there's what you have right now. Uh, if you only had this, your life would be better. Want this, want this, want this, want this enough that you're going to go spend your hard-earned cash to get it. Sometimes I will try to put this in terms that my kids can understand. Uh, they'll want something, and I'll say, wow, that's 50 bucks. Is that worth five hours of your work? Huh? What do you, what do you mean? Well, you get paid $10 an hour to mow the yard or to clean the house. Are you willing to work hard labor for, ten or for five hours just to get that? Is it worth it? Put it in those terms, if you will. Um, the word literally, the coveting word literally means to pant after something. It's a Greek word, um, uh, you know, sort of like a <laughs> where you're so, so thirsty for it. Uh, another, another picture of this is, uh, it's a, it comes from another Greek word, another combination of Greek word, which means to grasp onto something so tightly that you can't let go of it. Um, and if you think about it, this is where, if it's something that you have to have and hold on that tightly, do you have it or does it have you? Um, uh, envy uh, is very similar. Uh, it's resenting God's goodness in somebody else's life and ignoring God's goodness in your life. So you resent what I have because I'm so jealous of what they have. Uh, coveting is where you want their stuff. Envy is where you want their life. Coveting is where you're looking to God and saying, why can't I have this? Envy is saying, why do they have it and I don't? 
So they're very, very close things. But both occur when you reject what God wants for you. Uh, both occur when you reject what God wants for you. So what really is sort of the stronghold behind all of this? I mean, you could say it's coveting, you could say it's envy. Uh, I think the lie that we believe that's behind all this is that I need something in my life to make me happy. Uh, there, there's a something out there, which if I just had it, then I would be happy. That's why we covet. That's why we crave it. That's why we think, you know, I just got to have that because my life is not fulfilled if I don't have that. That's where envy comes from. It looks at somebody else and says, wow, I can see how happy they are. And, you know, I would be as happy as they are if I had all the stuff that they had. If I had that car, if I had that girl, if I had that house, if I had that stuff. I see my friends at school and all the stuff they have. Mom, what's going on with you? How come, you know, kind of like the kid in there. It's like, why don't you love me, right? I, it's so funny, like as, a, as little kids, there's only a certain phase of life where you can control the influences that they have, right? Because eventually, all their friends have it. Like I remember, um, I thought I was just going above and beyond and like extravagant parent when I got my kids an iPad. I'm like, wow, can't, can't believe it. And I said, man, how many of your friends at school have an iPad? All of them, right? And then I did the same thing. Like I, I went out and bought the Wii, and my kids didn't know about other game systems for a long time. Kind of kept them in the dark about all that. And then all of a sudden they came home and they're like, why do we still got a Wii, man? You realize Nintendo's come out with two more game systems since then? I was like, oh, yeah, all right. Um, by the way, awareness is the enemy of contentment. Um, uh, the issue, uh, we, since we don't really, the reason why we don't really know a lot about envy and uh, Sorry, the reason why we know more about envy and coveting than contentment is because we have so many more examples of envy and coveting than we do contentment. Uh, envy and contentment have marketing ads. Uh, they have songs about them. Uh, they have uh, posters, uh, uh, poster childs everywhere of people who have all this stuff that we can only want. Where do you find the examples of the contentment? Uh, but 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says this, But godliness with contentment is, is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, and it's funny, I'm dyslexic, okay? So because I'm dyslexic, I have to read stuff over and over and over again, because sometimes I'll read stuff and it doesn't make sense, so I'll have to reread it, because I'm like, I don't think I read that right. I misread this verse multiple times, and even when I still read it, I still want to go back to the way that I originally read it. It says, but if we have food and clothing, will we be content with that? It actually says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I've always read it as a question, right? Uh, and it's kind of almost, it's almost, sometimes I say it's almost a better way to read it sometimes. Like, food and clothing, will you be content with that? If that's all you have, will you be content with that? Can you actually be content? He says, then he goes on, passage most of us have heard. Um, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap of many kinds of fools uh, and all the harm, uh, things that it plunges people into with ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kind of evil. As some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Um, so here he says, godliness plus contentment. Uh, godliness. Uh, some translations may call that piety. I don't really like the word piety because I think it, it loses the, the picture of it. Uh, you're going to see where this is, comes back into something we say here every week. Uh, the actual word godliness is a, it's someone's inner response to their relationship with God, which naturally expresses itself in their attitudes and behaviors. Uh, so it's somebody's inner response to their relationship with God, which will naturally express itself in your attitude and behavior. After all, I say over and over again, this life is about nothing more than your 
loving relationship with God. Now, what is piety? It's where that relationship spills over into your attitudes and behaviors, where that relationship so characterizes your nature that it's evident in the way that you think and the stuff that you do. So when you say somebody is pious, so oftentimes we talk about false piety. That's that person who gets up there and acts, well, I don't know what all this gift-giving stuff is at Christmas. We give Jesus at my home. That's the kind of person who needs to be slapped, right? Um, that's not piety, okay? That's not piety. True piety is where somebody's loving relationship with God uh, is, is so evident that it just spills over, it influences, uh, and, and sort of a natural response uh, by, by influencing their attitudes and behaviors. That's what godliness is. So godliness, he says, plus contentment is great gain. So there's nothing better in your life than if you have a relationship with God that spills over into your attitudes and your behaviors and you're content. You're happy with that relationship with God, where there's nothing else you need besides that relationship with God. And the question is, is that really even possible? Is it really even possible to be content? Um, And I will say, it's not impossible, but it's darn near it, because there are billion-dollar advertising campaigns out there to get you to not be content. There is Every social media uh, idea and post out there, most of them are geared towards making you not content. Although they wouldn't say that's their motive, they're just expressing the excitement that they're having. Look at me, I'm on vacation. Uh, and because the result of that, though, is an issue with, with that. Um, Proverbs 23, 17 says this, do not let your heart envy. What's, what's he mean by that? What, what's, he, what's he pointing out there? Envy is a choice. Whether or not you're gonna be content or enviness or, or covetousness, it is a choice. It is a choice you have uh, that you have the ability to control. Uh, Paul says it this way, I've learned to be content. It's something I learned. It doesn't just happen naturally. It's something I've learned to be content. He says, regardless of the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have a lot. I know what it is to, to be hungry. I know what it is to be well-fed. Um, he says, I have learned the secret of being content. So I want to say, is it really a secret or is it just that coveting is shouting whereas envy is whispering? Coveting has every example whereas contentment has very few examples. So is it really a secret or is it just one of those things that somebody can say it and you never even hear it? You ever had one of those things where somebody says something a hundred times and then all of a sudden like years later they go, you know something? Let me tell you what I realized in life. And you're like, I've been telling you that your whole life. That's pretty much every parent-child conversation somewhere between age 30 and 50. When they get to that age, they come back to you and go, you know what I figured out? Anyways, um, so learn the secret of being content. Um, so, so what is that secret? Uh, I, I think one of the insights that comes out of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes is written by a guy who was given everything. Uh, the, all, all the stuff that you felt like you had to have to make you happy, he had it all. And when he had it all, he realized none of that made me happy. Uh, None of it at all. And so uh, what he says is this. He says, um, I've noticed this thing. At least it's one thing that's really good. It's good for people to eat and drink and be able to enjoy their work under the sun during this short life that God has given them and to accept their lot in life. It's a good thing to receive wealth from God and, and the health to enjoy it. But to enjoy your work and to accept your life, your lot in life, indeed, this is a gift of God. What's his theme there? What's, what's the, he says it twice. Accept your lot in life. Can you accept your lot in life? Uh, this goes back to one of my, or my favorite book is 
by Donald Miller, by Donald Miller called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in that book, he talks about how life is like improv. Now, we want life to be like a script theater production where I work together. Maybe, maybe you've been given a script by somebody's who's written out. They tell you ahead of time, okay, here's the part you're going to play. Here's what you're going to do. And then there's a lot of uh, productions where the actors get to sort of put some input into the character and say, okay, well, I think it would be better if, if the character did this. And so you can work together with the screenwriter to create the perfect movie or the perfect production. A lot of us think that's what life is like, right? Of course, God is the author of it, but he comes to me and I get to consult with him and say, you know, we could really spice up life a little bit better. It could be a whole lot better. I think we would all enjoy it more if we worked this into the script somehow. Life isn't like that. It's more like improv. Improv is where you show up at the theater and you don't have a clue what you're going to be that night, right? You get there and you're just sort of thrown something. And the only way that you can excel at improv is to just go with it. Is that not a better description of life than anything else? I mean, how many of us had a script in life we thought we were playing out only to find out life was a whole lot more like improv than it ever was like the script? Like improv, that's where you show up and they say, okay, here you are. You're chaperoning a school trip uh, to an amusement park, but here's the thing, each one of the kids is actually a barnyard animal. Go. Like, yeah, that is my life right there. That is exactly my life. Um, but the question is, can I accept this? Like for the actor, they have to ask, can I accept it? If they don't accept it, they will ruin the theater, theatrical production. The more that they accept it and go with it and embrace it, the more fun everybody has. Uh, and on top of that, um, the more you enjoy that moment. So what is life? Life is like an improv skit where God says, okay, you are in the Navy and you are now in Virginia Beach, but I didn't want to be in Virginia. I don't care. Now you're in Virginia Beach and you've got three kids and one of them has this issue, one of them has this issue, and your wife is saying this. All right, go. And you play it out. And here's the question is, will you, and this is what life is really all about, uh, will you be able to accept it and develop a working relationship with God that grows in your love for him over time as you embrace your lot in life, your script, your role, your improv that you're playing out, such that it is to the enjoyment of God that one day you'll ultimately be able to enjoy that relationship with him that you learned, that you learned and you developed in this improv. Will you be able to you know, develop it in such a way that you'll be able to enjoy that relationship with him for all eternity? That's what it is. When we say this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with God you'll enjoy for all eternity, that's what it is. And he says that, you know, if you're going to be content in life, like, how can you enjoy that? Can I really enjoy that? That's what he says. Back in Ecclesiastes, he says, it's good for people to eat and drink and enjoy their work under the sun. Here's one of the big catches, though. He says, your work under the sun. Under sun is his way of saying uh, this life that we live on this earth, this planet. He says, during the short life God has given them. I can't stress that enough. I probably mention it every single week. Life is short. And some of us look at our lot in life, and the reason why we can't accept our lot in life is we think to ourselves, you mean to tell me for the next 60 years this is what I'm going to have to deal with? Yeah, but in light of eternity, that's a really short time. And if you have to endure that for this short time to receive this for this eternal time, can you? Like if I told you, if you do this, it's going to be a really hard task, but in one week I will give you a million dollars. Would that change the way you view the hard task for that week? Of course it would. 
when you have your eyes on eternity, this life is about nothing, but love and relationship with God, I'll enjoy for all eternity, because this life is so short, and that is so eternal. Um, so what does it look like, though, if you won't accept your lot in life? What, is it, what does it look like when you won't accept what God has given you, how God has provided for you? Well, there are hundreds of examples of this throughout the Bible. Uh, my favorite, though, uh, is one that uh, is described over in Psalm 106. Uh, and in Psalm 106, he's describing something that happens back in Numbers 11. In Psalm 106, he says this, It wasn't long before they forgot all about what God had done for them. Uh, now let me pause for this. Um, the setting here is the people are out in the desert. Have you ever been... Uh, in a desert, just think about a desert setting, whether it be the one out in California, maybe in northern Mexico, uh, maybe some of y'all been overseas and seen some deserts. Just think about a desert climate. Maybe you've ever seen one, picture a movie or something that has a desert climate. So picture you're out in the desert and there, where there's no food at all. Now, God has miraculously provided food for them. Now, he's miraculously provided food for them, not just provided it for them, but they don't have to work for it. They just go outside and pick it up. Now, think about what your life would be like if you didn't have to pay money for food. How amazing would that be, right? I mean, just think about that. Like, in their society, if they wanted food, it was either agriculture or it was farming, uh, or, or say, uh, life, raising livestock, whether well, I guess we're farming. Um, agriculture. Um, so you're going to till up the soil, you're going to break up the soil, you're going to plant some seed in there, you're going to go out and have to water it, you're going to have to fertilize it, uh, get rid of the pests and the weeds, and then you have to go out harvest time and collect it all up, and then you're going to have to process that food. Sometimes, you know, for the wheat, you're, you're separating the, the grain from the shaft, so you have to process that food and then take it to market so you can make money, so you can eat both the stuff that you have and buy the stuff that other people have made. That's the process right there. Now, if you're raising livestock, uh, it sounds like a really fun thing. You get to go play with cute furry farm animals. Farm life is not the life for me, okay? I don't need green, green acres, you know? No, I, I'm taking the city. Thank you very much. Uh, farm life, uh, what is that like? Well, I have some friends of mine in, Austri- or in New Zealand who are dairy farmers. And when I went there and hung out with them, it was interesting because, you know, think, oh, cool, what an awesome dairy farm. I went and did the milking with them. Uh, here's the thing. You know you have to milk those cows at least twice a day, uh, sometimes in season three times a day? So that means every morning before breakfast and every night after dinner, you have to go out and milk 250 cows. Whatever the process is, no matter how automated it is, they still need you there to do that. And it's, clean, it's, it's, it's work. And even if it was fun work, the very fact that you have to do it every single day, and here's the thing, cows don't take a day off. That's, that's the nature of farming. They don't take a day off. And so if you just wanted to go somewhere for an overnight, you had to find somebody else who would come over to your farm and do it for you, whether you hire that person or you just swap it out. And if you're swapping it out, what's that mean for you some other weeks? You're doing 500 cows in that night because you're doing your cows plus your friend's cow who's out of town. Farming's hard work. But here's what God did for them out in the desert. Every day, without having to farm for it, they woke up and there was food on the ground and all they had to do was just go pick it up. That's it. Just go pick it up. Wow. Now, it says it wasn't long before they forgot about the fact that this was a miracle in and of itself. It says, and they would not wait for God's plan to unfold. Now, God wanted to bring them to the land of milk and honey, but they got there and they rejected it. They said, no, we don't want to do that. So that's what was God's plan for them. They wouldn't wait for that. They wouldn't be patient, wouldn't trust God for that. And so instead they were out here in the desert. It says, they only cared about their craving in the desert. And so they provoked God with their insistent demands. Now, what they, be- what they said is, I'm tired of the miraculous food you've been giving us every single day that we don't have to work for. What about something else? We want some variety in our diet. I want some meat. And so they started asking for meat. And so 
God says, so he gave them exactly what they asked for. Mm. You know what's funny? At Christmas time, we, that would be a great thing, right? If I got exactly what I asked for. Isn't that really what most people's goal is at Christmas? At least your kid's goal, to get exactly what I asked for. For some of you, that's your, that's your hope for Christmas, that this Christmas you'll get exactly what you asked for. Let me just tell you right now, when it comes to God, when it says in the scriptures God gave them exactly what they asked for, you know the result is not going to be what you thought, right? You already know. You don't even know what this, some of you have no idea what this story is or how it turns out. You know nothing else other than that's probably not a good thing. And it's funny, you know that, but in your own life you still think, if God would only give me exactly what I asked for, then I'd start to think to myself, now God, now you're with it. Now you got some brains, God. Now you know what you're doing. Now you're really the good God everybody's talked about because now you're giving me exactly what I asked for. But here's the thing. When God gives you exactly what you asked for, so they wanted meat. Let me go over to Numbers 11. God says, okay, you want meat? I'm not enough for you? The miraculous gift of not having to work for it isn't enough for you? Okay, fine. You're, I love the way the message translation puts it. He says, you're going to have so much meat, it's going to be coming out your nose. You're going to be so sick of meat, you're going to throw up in the mere mention of meat. And here's why. Because you have rejected God, who is right here among you, whining to his face. So it says back in Psalm 106 about this, it says, he gave them exactly what they asked for, but along with it, he gave them an empty heart. In other words, he didn't give them the capacity to enjoy what it was that they wanted. Whew. Going back to the thing. This idea that I have to have something in order for me to be happy. We overlook the fact that happiness is a gift from God. And if you think the thing is going to give you the happiness, you may work and get that thing, or God may give you that thing, or your parents may give you that thing, or your spouse may give you that thing, or a friend may give you that thing. But if God doesn't give you the ability to enjoy it, it's not going to be what you wanted it to be. But put that aside. Maybe it's too late to ask the question. Maybe I should have asked earlier. What do you want this year for Christmas? Not what you want now, having heard my whole setup, but what do you want for Christmas, right? What do you, after you forget about this message, hope your parents forget about this message, hope your spouse forgets about this message, when you go home and have the conversation, say, no, we're really not doing all that, are we? What do you really want for Christmas this year? Okay? Put that aside, all right? What was it last year? What was the it gift last year? Okay, do you still enjoy that? Whatever it was, if you got it, have you enjoyed it? Do you still enjoy it? Do you still use it? Better question, do you still know where it is? Do you even know what it was? Okay, now here's your assignment. Here's a fun exercise. List out the it gift for your last five years and ask this question, do I still use it? Do I still enjoy it? Do I even know what it was or where it is for the last five years? Now, you're already realizing that may be a daunting task. It's not something you can just rattle, rattle off. However, in the moment, in the moment, it just wouldn't be Christmas if I don't have this. I just gotta have it. This is gonna make me so happy. I'll never ask for another thing my entire life. But what happened? Where is it? Why is it, why, why isn't it, why is it that not just something you just rattle right off your list? There must be some disconnect between what we thought it would deliver and what it actually delivered. There must be some issue with the idea of what I have to have in order to be happy 
doesn't actually lead to happiness. But you know what we think? This year, it'll be different. This thing, it'll really make me happy. This is the thing I really want now. Um, so what do we do? How do you break this stronghold of I have to have stuff in order to be happy? Um, well, one is we have to accept our lot in life, accept what we have, be thankful to God for what he's already given us. Um, and lastly, be able to recognize uh, that it's a myth, that it's, it's, it's a false reality. I won't actually be happy with stuff. Stuff does not lead to happiness. Now, I've struggled with where to go. Like, some messages are easy to end because I just kind of wrap it up and say, now, go do it. This is a kind of a harder one because I don't want this to be remembered as the sermon that ruined Christmas. <laughs> I don't want it to be the reason why your kids don't want you to go to church anymore. <laughs> but I kind of want to ask, I, I don't really know what to tell you to do about it this Christmas, right? I mean, do you do the $10 gift limit? I don't know. Um, but what, what do you do? I, I, I struggle with this. Um, I will say, I'm going to give you some principles. Though At some point, there needs to be a shift in your household with, your, with, you, know, with you, know, you and whoever you're with in your household. There needs to be some shift uh, from the what I want to get at Christmas to what I want to give at Christmas. There needs to be a shift there. And the hard part about this is when the shift happens for you, and you might say, well, that's why I give such nice gifts at Christmas. That's great, but you also have to think about the impact that gift is having on the receiver, okay? You gotta be able to balance both of those, because some of y'all people get crazy with this stuff, right? But you have to think about what impact is this going to have on the receiver. Uh, at some point, I need to find a way that my kids shift from Christmas and thinking about what I am going to get this Christmas to what can I give this Christmas? And here, here's what, here I'll put it in a sense is, have a goal to find the perfect gift to give somebody this Christmas, right? Um, and it's really interesting when I talk about the it gift. I don't remember any of my it gifts. Like when I say the it gift, you know what I'm talking about. Like, like the gift like what makes Christmas, like the one that's top of the list. You know, the Red Rider BB gun, you know, for little Ralphie, right? That movie was all made because we all have that it gift typically in our mind. I honestly cannot remember any of my it gifts. But I do remember one of my sister's it gifts because I'm the one who gave it to her. Now, I don't know why uh, my parents told her no. It was kind of like the $20,000 shoes back in that day. Uh, it, was, it was a leather jacket. I don't know if y'all remember when leather jackets were the thing, right? I mean, this was somewhere in the members-only jeans jacket era. There was always a jacket. One of those phases in there was a leather jacket. Okay, whether a bombardier type jacket or suede jacket, it was a leather jacket. They're all over the place now, but man, back then, it was a hot item. And for whatever reason, my parents said no. I mean, they started out 100 bucks and went up. My parents said no. And my sister was just like, I got to have it. I got to have it. And I saw how intensely she wanted it, and then my parents wouldn't give it. And when you're like in sixth, seventh grade, this is back in the 80s, so this would have been like, $5,000 nowadays. I don't know what. A hundred bucks when you're in seventh grade and you don't have the ability to go earn money, that's a lot of money. That's like all you got. And I remember going and shopping and getting her that jacket. I remember when she opened it, she cried. 
I still remember it. That's an experience I hope you're instilling in your kids is the desire to give the perfect gift. Uh, it truly is, I know it's so cliche, it truly is better to give than receive um, because that's what captures the heart of God at Christmas. When we say we give gifts because God gave gifts at Christmas, are we trying to capture the, uh, the sentiment of what it means to be a sinner who needs a gift? No, I got that one down. The sentiment I need to capture is the heart of God who loves so much that he gave. There has to be a shift somewhere to go from, I need this to be happy, to recognizing, no, my happiness comes from God, and my happiness comes from an overflow of my relationship with God, and the closer I am with God, the more I become like God, and when I become like God, I give like God gives. Um, so I don't know how that happens in your family. I don't know what that looks like. Just some shift from the, the focus of what I get to what I give, because we understand the gifts aren't gonna make us happy. It's that relationship with God. It's the godliness plus contentment. That's the great gain. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if we will ever get this one right because this season will war against this message every single year for the rest of our life. And just when we get this whole thing down and we really find joy in giving, we then run the risk of making Christmas all about receiving for the person we're giving to, Lord. So I don't know. I don't know where this balance is. But we need to begin with this truth that godliness plus contentment is great gain. That contentment comes from accepting my lot in life. From recognizing, Lord, that what I primarily need in this life is my relationship with you. And no thing, no person will ever make me happy if I'm not already happy with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.